me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. And while you uh, go to Matthew 1, um, I want to um, point out that as Christmas is coming tomorrow, uh, we want to offer any who do not have a Bible here to pick one up at the back. We have them back at the back here, and we'd love to give you a free Bible as a gift for Christmas. And if you know someone who doesn't have a Bible but could use one, feel free to grab one of those as well as we love to give those away as a gift. Merry Christmas. Now, we are uh, in today, are still continuing our series, though we're nearing the end of it, of our, uh, of our um, King of My Heart series. We've been looking at the series of Old Testament kings, and last week we came to a dark and violent end uh, to the kings of Israel when we saw Zedekiah, the fall of Jerusalem, and the exile in 586 B.C. After that, for almost 600 years, the people of God had no king, no king, uh, though we'll say they had no legitimate king to be precise. And then came our text in 4 B.C., when something radically changed for the people of God and really for all of us in the world when the king of kings himself actually arrived personally. And uh, believing that God has spoken his word, would you please stand for the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And Jew Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, 
Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask you right now to come and dwell among us, for that's what Christmas is about. Start with the speaker. He needs you. Start for those of us who hear. For we all need your presence to hear the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Christmas, of course, is about family and friends. We're going to be busy about that these next few days as a family and my family. Christmas is also about giving gifts like the Magi in our text today. But Christmas is also about recalibrating important things. But never, ever forget, Christmas is about a great war where a king takes a beachhead. That's what happened in June 6, 1944, in something called Operation Overlord. Allied troops had been battling Nazi Germany for years and wanted to push back. And, and the, uh, the plan for the Operation Overlord uh, was hatched in May 1943, a year earlier in Washington, D.C., when FDR and Winston Churchill uh, met at the Trident Conference. And along with military strategists, they came up with a plan to cross the English Channel and take the French Normandy beaches. The U.S. was given two beachheads called Utah and Omaha, and the British were given beachheads called Sword and Gold, and yes, the Canadians were even involved, and they were given Juno as a beachhead. The year-long buildup was full of deceptive communications and intelligence tradecraft to throw the Nazis off. The Allies went so far as to take a dead body of a soldier, place false invasion plans on him, and left him on a beach in Italy. It worked. Ian Fleming, by the way, the author of James Bond, helped hatch this plan. Uh, on June 6, 1944, 1,200 planes led an airborne assault along with 5,000 ships and 160,000 troops uh, on what was the largest amphibious assault in history. That day, famously, came to be known as D-Day. D standing for disembark, or later on used poetically as decision day. Well, D-Day, of course, looms large in our history, in the world, and, and it was the beginning of the end for Nazi Germany. But Matthew 1 today has a far greater version of D-Day when the God of the universe sent his son with a full-on invasion on the strangest of beachheads, a little town called Bethlehem. 
and with the strangest of military means, a divine child. Christmas Day was D-Day, Decision Day, for all of human history, including for you and me. And today we're going to ask, what happened on that eternal D-Day, the first Christmas? And what does Jesus taking that beachhead mean for us on this Christmas today? Well, over the next few moments, I want you to keep three eyes in mind as we talk through the text. Oh, as we look at the D-Day of Christmas, we're going to look at eye, the eye of inconvenience, the eye of invasion, and the eye of invitation. Yes, I'm going to be preacherly today in that way. Now, the first eye of inconvenience starts with the story of the great kings going back into the Old Testament, the great kings of Israel, which lead up to this carpenter's son becoming the unexpected king. And... Uh, uh, to remind us where we were over these last few months with all the kings of Israel, Israel was led by God through hundreds of years of judges and prophets. But the people of God grew tired of this and started demanding that God give them a king like the Canaanites. Starting with King Saul and going on into the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah, they got what they asked for. They got a king in a series of kings, and they got corrupt, compromising kings who totally rejected God's call to him alone as the one who was worthy of their highest allegiance and worship. And no question, remember what Saul's name means in Hebrew? You asked for it. As a result, coming out of this dark period of compromise and, and corruption, the refrain of the book of Kings was they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Happily, God raised up great kings as exceptions. King David, King Hezekiah, just to name a few. But if you look at their lives, even they didn't come through all the time. It's like the whole Old Testament was a dr giant drum roll leading up to the real king the Messiah, the Christ who was to come. And sure enough, that's how verse 18 starts us off today. Look at that. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now the text goes on to see, talk about how Jesus was born as the King of Kings, to Joseph and to Mary. And the claim of Christianity is that Jesus is the Lord of all the nations, the King of kings, who has authority over everything. In other words, Christ came into the world as Lord over Caesar, who was the king over the Roman Empire, the superpower of that time. Christ came into the world so that he might be Lord over the President of the United States and our leaders here even today. But here's a question. How do we know he was, he was a king? How do we know he has this kind of authority to be Lord of Lords? What were his credentials that made him so different than the rest of so many kings who made great claims through the millennia? 
Well, there are a couple things we can consider here in this text itself in Matthew 1 and 2. And the first is how much the Old Testament Scriptures were quoted in our text. And those Old Testament Scriptures point all the way back to the very beginning, Genesis 3, where when Adam and Eve fell, God made a promise that there would be a champion seed who would come and crush evil in the world once and for all. Those Scriptures called people to follow and worship one final king in Christ who would come one day. And Matthew himself quotes two Old Testament prophecies saying that Jesus was the one conceived as a virgin, by a virgin, and as a ruler who would shepherd Israel. That prophecy is this Christ, is what Matthew is saying. Now, second, did you notice in our text that Joseph, er, Jesus' earthly father, was called a son of David? Now, that's an important point in our text. Joseph's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, and you can look in chapter 1 at the actual genealogy, goes all the way back to King David himself. Matthew is saying Jesus was born into a royal legal line and had those kind of credentials even within the nation of Israel. God made a promise to David that he would one day have an eternal king on his throne. Jesus is that eternal king. Third, and most provocatively in our text, Joseph was told in a dream that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary. This was uh, the praise of a virgin birth coming out. Now, some may say, well, wait a minute, virgin birth, hold on a second now. Now, that seems a little crazy for that time. Now, we can do things now like in vitro fertilization, but we couldn't do it then. Now, there's a couple thoughts to that concern. The first would be this. Scriptures are full of barren women who became pregnant through God's blessing with their husbands. Think of Hannah, John the Baptist, with his uh, barren mother Elizabeth and uh, his dad Zechariah. Of course, the best known is a 90-year-old barren woman named Sarah, the, the wife of uh, Abraham, who gets pregnant with Isaac. And these were clearly miracles the way the Scriptures present it. But Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit is something even more important, a greater miracle. He was conceived by God himself, which means Jesus is God and man. Therefore, he didn't inherit the sin nature that has been passed on to us through the millennia from Adam. This sets Jesus apart from all other kings. He was a miracle baby, and therefore a very different leader. Now, how do we take this claim in? Well, I have a friend of mine, an older friend here in Ballantyne, and we hang out a lot, and we talk fantasy football and Christianity. Yes, I know that's a strange combination, but we love it. And um, uh, uh, I, w one day, I, I have to tell you, right now, my team is in the semifinals of our league. I'm hoping Dak, Dak Prescott has a really good day today. That would be good for me. But one of the things that we talk about besides... Uh, fantasy football is this. Uh, my friend, he, he really struggles with the idea that God actually cares 
about the little things of our lives. He struggles with the idea that God actually cares for the little things about my life and his life. To him, God doesn't care about that stuff because he's preoccupied with the bigger things of the world, like the wars that are going on in the Middle East and things like that. In other words, in terms of his own experience of God, God seems small and distant, even disengaged. The virgin birth, however, says something really different. It says God is big and close. God is big and close. He's engaged. He comes with great power, and yet he's relational. He's very different as a king and authority, more different than anyone we've ever experienced. Now, what does that all mean for us today? Well, that brings us to our first eye of, of this. Jesus' virgin birth presents us with all kinds of inconveniences. If God is small and distant, we don't have to worry about him getting involved. We can do our own thing. But if he's big and close, we have to deal with him in our lives. You see, when Jesus took the beachhead in the virgin birth 2,000 years ago, it ended up being an incredible inconvenience for Joseph and Mary, for sure. Now, of course, as parents, they not only had the standard problems of pregnancy and birth, you know, midnight feedings, vigilance to protect the child's life, but in their case, they had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem in basically the ninth month of her pregnancy, and then even worse, later on in Matthew 1, we'll talk about in a little later, because, of Jesus, because their association with Jesus, they had to deal with threats against their lives and against Jesus' life. The issue is the inconvenience gets tough when Jesus moves into your life as this big and close Savior. Now, community-wise, we see a really awkward inconvenience for Joseph and Mary in our text as well. Joseph and Mary, because of Jesus in their life and the way this, this uh, pregnancy came about, they had to deal with perceptions, not reality, of shame. When she got pregnant without Joseph, you could imagine the whispers going on. Do you know what's going on with them? Now, of course, Joseph tried to quietly divorce Mary because engagements were legally binding then. But because Joseph was an honorable man, and more specifically, because of an exhortation of an angel in a dream, Joseph went through with a shotgun wedding. Now, here's the thing. Jesus was very much wanted by the young couple, especially when both of them were separately visited by angels exhorting them to go through with the marriage and the raising of the child. But while Jesus was wanted, he also got in the way as the king. Now, this is the life of the unbeliever, of the believer, excuse me, with Jesus. Jesus fills you with joy and he interrupts your life constantly as the king. He gives you peace, and he disrupts your plans. 
And it makes sense. (laughs) A sovereign king wouldn't be a sovereign lord of your life if he didn't let his lordship be known. You see, when life or career or family does not go your way as a follower of a Christ, here's what I tell you. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to that. That's often where you learn about his name. Joseph was told to name the Son of God Jesus. Jesus is the Greek version of the Aramaic Yeshua, which in Hebrew is Joshua. It means Yahweh God saves. And when you walk with Christ Jesus in your life, with King Jesus in your life, like Joseph and Mary, you can bet he will be big and close, and he will create inconvenient moments that you will discover him and his name in fresh ways. What does that look like? Well, let me illustrate. About 10 or 12 years ago, I went on this midlife crisis trip with friends of mine. We went to British Columbia, Canada, and climbed up an 8,400-foot mountain. And we did it from sea level. We literally started the trail right after we got off the boat. And it was over about five or six days, and a day or so in where uh, we wake up one morning, and we're three or 4,000 feet up, uh, we're on a ledge, And it's a gorgeous view. I mean, you can see forever, and it's just magnificent, beautiful view. And then the guys, uh, the guys who are our guides, actually uh, said to us, "We need to pack up and go to the next place." And so we're all all packed up, and we go, "All right, here we go. Where are we going?" And we're looking around and going, "Uh, "There's nowhere to go other than the trail we just came up." And they said, "Oh yeah, there is. We're going to go up that way." And we turned around, and it was almost like this uh, angle going straight up with snow all over it. And we're going, what? That's inconvenient. (laughs) But the leader said this to, to all of us. He said, look, just do what I do. Follow me. He took one foot, and he put it in the snow. And stepped up. He took another foot, put it in the snow, stepped up, and just kept going. And he said, put your feet where my feet have gone. And so I was literally right behind him. I put my feet where his feet were, and I just kept going. And we went really slowly but steadily, hundreds and hundreds of feet, almost straight up, walking up this mountain. I thought this week, you know, if I were alone on that ledge... There is no way I could do it. I wouldn't have even noticed how you could do that. What makes the difference when you are faced with an inconvenient challenge in life? Well, it's a leader who's there with you. When Jesus calls you to follow as the Lord of inconveniences, remember, his name is Emmanuel. God with us. He's with us going up that mountain as he leads us. He's big and close. He's with you when you face something that is way too big for you to handle yourself. 
So for some, Jesus, the king, taking the beachhead can be a bit of an inconvenience. But for others, Jesus taking that beachhead can be the second eye today, the eye of invasion. Look at verse 1 with me in chapter 2. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So we're introduced in this part of our text to two sets of characters, and they're both royal authorities. We have an actual king, Herod the Great, a historic person, and the Magi, or wise men, who often served as counselors to kings. The Magi show up from another country, and like officials from another country, they're not supposed to go anywhere else in the other country until they talk to the king or the leader of the country first. And they come asking, where is the king of the Jews? We saw a star. Now, how do you think the in-office king who had been there for almost 40 years, Herod the Great, took that question? Well, as the text evolves, we see that he is threatened by the news. The word of a, that a king had been born into their midst was troubling to him and the city of Jerusalem. I mean, things were good. Why mess with a good thing? But I got to ask, why wouldn't Jesus' coming matter to a Jewish king? I mean, after all, prophecy had been saying a Messiah have been coming for centuries. Shouldn't they be celebrating? Well, here's what you need to know about Herod, and I'll tell you in this just really short sense. He was a fake king. He was not from the royal line of David. He was actually appointed by Rome by none other than Julius Caesar himself. He ruled for about 40 years, and he did three big things in his uh, rule. He rubbed out all those who resisted Rome, his benefactor. He also believed the political mantra, it's the economy, stupid. So he oversaw the biggest e economic and building expansion in Jewish history since the days of the old kings. He even renovated the temple and would have made Chip and Joanna and even Aaron and Ben of hometown really impressed. But there is a dark side to Herod. There's evidence that he allowed other temples to other gods to be built. He was playing both sides with God to hedge his bets. He even married into a rival Jewish family and in a few decades, killed his wife and his kids because they were a threat to his power. Can you imagine that? He's building temples of all kinds for the people and killing others to hold on to power. Does that sound familiar to you who've been listening to this series, King of My Heart? Well, he's a wicked king like Saul and Ahab and Zedekiah. It could have been said of him, he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
So you can, you can imagine then the shock that he felt when the wise men show up out of the blue saying, hey, where's the king of the Jews? He freaks along with the city. He tries to get the skinny from his scripture experts on where the Christ would be born, and they nailed it. They said Bethlehem. They knew their Bible. But then he does a little intelligence trade craft and a little political maneuvering at the same time. He tells the wise men to let him know where the child was so, so he could worship him. You see, Jesus' arrival felt like an invasion. It felt like D-Day against Herod's kingdom. Now, what's this got to do with us? Well, sometimes Jesus will confront us with his kingship in a way that threatens our sin and our idols. His great power will get us thinking about how limited our power is. And for those of us like me who have control issues, that feels like an invasion. And this gets to Herod's greater why. Why he responds the way he does. The why of the heart. He thought of himself as the ultimate king. Not Jesus, the promised king. Nonetheless, Christ invades any place where you think of yourself as the ultimate king. He will invade. He will come and challenge that hope of self. He will challenge that hope of an idol. Why does, he, why does Jesus do that? This is going to be a shocker. For his own glory, he loves us with justice. For his own glory, he loves us with justice. Remember, love and justice stands in people's way when they walk the evil road. Love and justice invades for our good. Indeed, there are at least two objectives to Jesus invading our world. The first is Christ fights against the enemies of sin, Satan, and worldliness. And he does it to set things right, to make things the way they're supposed to be. You want to know why you choose the candidate you vote for as local authorities or our, our governor or even our presidents because you want them to set something right. Jesus came to make all things right. And that started on D-Day, that first Christmas. Don't miss this, though. As D-Day goes on, as Jesus lives and goes forward, his D-Day will ultimately end in a V-Day, a victory day, when Jesus will come back and his enemies will be finally and fully vanquished. So that's Jesus bringing loving justice. But the second objective of Jesus is that Christ fights for us and for our salvation. He fights for our hearts as a warrior king. You see, when Jesus started ministering after his baptism, he conquered all kinds of things. He conquered disease. He conquered acute evil and demons. He conquered weather, calming a storm. 
When the Son of God took on anything, it wasn't even close. And that's true with our hearts and our salvation. Jesus' fight goes all the way to the cross where he experiences God's wrath for us. Jesus takes on justice for us out of his love that we can be forgiven once and for all. He went to the cross to save us, for us. And if that wasn't enough, he conquered death once and for all. Our final enemy through the resurrection. Nothing can overcome Jesus. Jesus overcomes everything. And clearly, invasion has its benefits when a good king is invading. Now, the shocking thing about Herod is the promised Messiah had come, and his response was to work the angles with tradecraft. His intentions, of course, were later revealed when wise men avoided him on their way home because of another dream. Herod then proceeded to send his troops to Bethlehem where he killed all the male boys under two years of age. And in the end, we find out that Herod is no different than the dark and wicked Pharaoh from way back in Moses' time who killed children for political purposes. He's no different from the wicked kings of old, but Christ is different. He doesn't bring death. He brings life. So as the great king takes the beachhead for his kingdom, Jesus can not only be an inconvenience for believers, he can be a serious, invasive presence for those who reject him. But there is a stark contrast concluding in our text today, and that brings us to our last eye in verse 9. Look at that with me, the eye of invitation. Look at verse 9. It says this, After listening to the king, they went on their way, that is, the magi, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We come back to the Magi, who are the surprise of the whole text. Why a surprise? They weren't Jews. They were Gentiles. We don't know how many there actually are. We know we sing of the three kings, but there were surely more than three with a caravan required to travel. They were likely rich with the quality of gifts they gave. They were men of great dignity, of great influence. In fact, they were the consulting intellectual class who counseled kings and leaders and regions. Daniel talked about them back in his book. They studied astrology, science, all kinds of religions, and were clearly struck by this strange source of light, the star. But don't miss this. These were the last guys you'd imagine would show up looking for Jesus. It'd be like a liberal Muslim professor at Harvard who works with government officials in Wall Street showing up to see Jesus. That's what I mean. You'd never expect that. And as astronomy and astrology types, they came following the star. Now, some scholars suggest the star was this unique exploding constellation at that time. 
Um, others, a confluence of Saturn and Jupiter coming in the sky. I think when you read, use Scripture to interpret Scripture, it's more likely it was the Shekinah glory presence of God, the pillar of fire that led God's people around the wilderness back in Moses' time. That's likely because the stars seemed to move and lead them to a place. But that's what got them excited. That's what got them celebrating with great joy. It was leading them to the Christ. Why were they so happy? The star was inviting them to seek Jesus because he wanted to be found. And there it is. Jesus invites us to know him as a great king and to celebrate the knowing. And what kind of celebration these guys have? Hello, Presbyterians. This is a weird one, but you got to hear it. The language of celebration here is so full of overflowing joy. It's like being at your favorite college football game, team's game. You're actually there at the game. It's, it's with a big rival, and they have the ball in the last minute of the game. They march downfield, score the winning a touchdown uh, with no time left on the clock. If you've ever been to a game like that, it is unbelievably exciting. People are going crazy, high fives, jumping around, going crazy. That's what these guys were doing. They were celebrating the greatness of Jesus, and they hadn't even seen him yet. So the text tells us they finally see him arriving at a house. I'll note, not a manger, because this was probably about two years from, their birth, from Jesus' birth. And they did what they purposed to do. They worshiped Jesus. They worshiped him offering him expensive gifts. Their joy was full being in his presence. They saw the big and close Savior. And why did they look for the star and follow it? We've got to ask that. I mean, what, what's behind all this? Well, apparently they knew the Scriptures because of Daniel and other believers who influenced them in the exile. They read the Bible. They kept seeing the promised king come up from Genesis to Malachi. And there's an application for those of us who look at our world right now and think, what difference will the gospel make? Well, let me tell you what difference it'll make. Daniel and a little crew of Jewish exiles had an effect on these very magi hundreds of years after they were gone. You can take hope that if you get the gospel out, the Lord will use it in his time and place. It might be hundreds of years down the road. But there is an even more important reason I want to get to of why they look for the star. And here it is. They were curious. Curious about the king they always wanted. Herod was clearly not that king. And, of course, they knew history to some degree, they had watched leaders and kings come and go in history. They had watched leaders come and go in their lifetimes. And while many in their time got more and more angry and more and more cynical at leaders, they looked above the pale for the one. The one. The one king who would make things right once and for all. They were looking for something different than what the world had been offering for millennia. 
Jesus was the one. Let me ask you something. What do you do when you're disappointed with your leaders? Don't go to anger or resignation or cynicism or contempt. Go to Christ and be curious. Be curious. Who is he? What's he really about? And here's why. Because the Christmas king is big and close. And if he gets involved in your life, he'll be an incredible inconvenience. But that's an opportunity for you to discover him in a new way. Because he invades our lives to fight for us and to set our upside-down world right-side up. And because... He invites us to find him. To find him because he's moving towards us. Always moving towards us. Wherever you are today, let's say you come today feeling good, like life is good. Amen. God's moving towards you in Christ. Are you feeling weak and kind of small and like life is full of a lot of losses? Christ is moving towards you. And do you feel very far away from God because he just seems small and distant? Here's the surprise. Even if you're running in sin, Christ is moving towards you. Think about that. Jesus entered a violent world that wanted to kill him. He was not afraid. And he's not afraid to enter your world. If you're not a follower of Christ today, I would invite you to examine Christ by being curious. Read about him in the Bible. Read about him like the Magi. And sit down with a fellow Christian. I'll be willing to sit down with you, but there are others here who would too. Talk with a Christian about the Bible. Ask the honest questions. Jesus might be inconvenient or invasive, but he's always saying, come on, bring it. Come follow me. If you're a follower of Christ today, and on this Christmas, don't forget that Christmas is D-Day, but V-Day's coming. Keep seeking Jesus. There is something about the anticipation of actually seeing him face to face that stirs worship, the very thing that happens in our text today. It stirs joy to anticipate one day we'll be with him, and there will be no more war. There will be no more violence. There will be no more sickness or death. What do you want in a leader or a king? Look for the Christmas King Jesus. And I think you'll find the King you always wanted. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, into this world 2,000 years ago in time, space, and history. You showed up in the flesh 
and your son. We pray today that you would give us a better picture and vision of you, Lord Jesus, as the big and close God, the big and close Savior, fully God, fully man, who actually is walking into our loneliness, our heartache, our disappointment, our disappointment with culture. You are moving towards us and calling us to trust you. Oh, Lord, give us that heart to see and to want to see you as the big and close Christ, our King. You are the King we always wanted. Amen.